What's going on? Welcome back. Podcast number nine for Tony and the field. Super fired up about what we got planned for you guys this week. It is October. It's feeling like fall here in Eugene. I'm Preston Highfield. We got Mr. California, a.k.a. Tony, a.k.a. Anthony Piganelli, holding it down for us in the Bay Area. I'm sure that he's pumped that uh, the Warriors are back on TV and that the NBA season's about to start. AP, what up? P, what's good, man? Glad to be on the show again with you. Good stuff. Yeah, so we got a, got a big pod ready for today. Uh, we're going to talk some college football, and man, Oregon is a program in shambles at the moment. Seems like the sky is falling here in Eugene. Kind of a perfect storm of Oregon not being very good, and Washington, the number five team in the country, set to come into Autzen Stadium on Saturday, favored at Autzen for the first time in over two decades. There are a lot of streaks that will potentially end on Saturday, Saturday notably to the fans, the 12-game winning streak that Oregon has going on over its rivals. And I'll say, as someone who's grown up in the state of Oregon, I think that Washington is just as big of a rival, if not a bigger rival, than Oregon State. Uh, And that's really saying something because the Civil War means a lot to this state every year. So we'll talk about Oregon and Washington, also what the Ducks are going to do at quarterback. Go to the pros. Odell Beckham Jr., he is an interesting character, to say the, say the least. He's uh, a little bit of a diva wide receiver. Got it into a fight uh, with a kicking net against Washington. Was penalized against Minnesota, so we'll break that down. Uh, and also, does he have a right to be frustrated? Plus, Josh Norman, uh, a player who OBJ has infamously gone at it with over the last two years especially, got fined on Wednesday for pretending to shoot an arrow after celebrating an interception I bring up the point that Brandon Cooks can do that without getting fined, so we'll talk about that. Blue Jays-Orioles, we don't talk a lot of baseball here, but I'm not going to lie. Postseason baseball is really fun, and the Blue Jays-Orioles-Giants-Mets have offered us two real, real solid wildcard games to break down. Plus, the NBA preseason, the Warriors look amazing. Uh, David Blatt gets a ring. Does he deserve a ring, and should he have accepted it? Plus, Dame Lillard says no to super teams. Dame Lillard certainly one of my favorite athletes of all time. Uh, so we'll talk about that. But first, AP, we got these clowns. All right, like literally clowns. We, we, use, <laughs> we use the word clowns uh, to describe someone who's uh, a bit of a jokester or, you know, doing whatever. But we have these literal clowns. It started as clown violence in 10 states, clown threats in 20 states. And, and now it's apparently spread to over 32 states. Notably today, there was a clown outside of a Portland middle school uh, who was seen walking around in boxing gloves and harassing people and trying to get into a fight. Uh, I, I'll talk about more of that in a second, but why, why is this a thing right now? Yeah, you're right. I think the big thing here is we're not talking about guys like Sarkeesian and Kiffin at a college frat party on Friday night. These are legitimate circus clowns, grown men dressing up as circus clowns, wearing a bunch of face paint, and just appearing in scary situations. I mean, it's disturbing. It's creepy. I don't know what uh, is going through. They're obviously, you know, nut jobs. It's obviously like a, a psychotic thing that's happening. Um, and they're they're showing up with weapons. Some of them have knives. Some of them have, have boxing gloves, as you mentioned earlier. And, it, I mean, this is just getting out of hand. I keep seeing these videos uh, all, you know, all over Twitter, all over social media. A clown here, a clown there, a clown in the subway, a clown in the woods. Some of them are kind of creepy, to be honest. And the clowns are chasing people, and they're running after them. Just today I saw a story about a guy getting chased with a clown holding a knife in a New York subway. And he was, like, legitimately running for his dear life, and he had to go and report it to the NYPD. I don't know why this is a thing. I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous that this is becoming like some sort of an epidemic, but this has just got to stop, man. This is just downright messed up. I absolutely love how it took you less than 10 seconds to get a Sark Kiffin joke in on the, on that take right there. Uh, that was good. What was the over-under for the show? I want to know what Vegas said. Uh, I don't know, but our listeners are going to have to start a betting line pretty soon uh, with the amount of... Oh, we're going to have to have an over-under for the show, over-under for how many... 
uh, seconds it takes you to get into it. But yeah, I mean, I agree, man. It, it started on social media and it's certainly a social media thing, right? Like some of the, <clears throat> like there hasn't actually been too much what police are calling clown violence that's gone on. It's been more so threats. I, I first saw it a couple of weeks ago. I saw pictures on the internet of a clown holding a shotgun in New York, which is obviously a, a shotgun. Yeah. Which is obviously a, a you know, a scary sight and you, you want to take that very seriously. Um, but at the same time, we haven't heard a ton of actual violence that has come out of it. If, if you do look at what's going on with the people who are behind the mask, they, they pretty much get arrested every time. So there was an incident in Portland today. I read about it uh, on OregonLive.com. And it was a, a, a grandpa who was 50 or 60, somewhere in there. He walked his grandkids to the school bus stop while wearing clown a clown face. And he had boxing gloves on, okay? And then he started getting into it with the assistant principal once he got to the school and and then you take a look at his mugshot. He was arrested a little bit later after basically threatening violence against the assistant principal who was trying to defuse the situation. When when you when you look at his mugshot, the dude is clearly like a, a serious tweaker. Uh, his name is let's see David Dalman. Did I get that right? Yeah. Okay. And he is he's. Clearly, I mean, he, he looks like one of those people who is, who is on crystal meth, seriously, seriously. Like, his mustache is, like, spiraling out of control, and he's losing hair, and he has, like, scars on his face. So, uh, I, I think, while you obviously want to take every case seriously, this just seems like one of those things where it's more of a social media epidemic than it actually is a real threat to humanity. Yeah, totally. I think that's a very valid point. We haven't actually seen someone uh, outside of a, of a petty little scratch on uh, some whiny wuss's arm the other day actually get injured and even more to a, a, a crazier, more extreme extent, get killed. I mean, that's probably not going to happen, let's be honest. So, sure, it's more of a social media epidemic. That's a very good point to bring up. There aren't actually any like criminal issues with this whole thing like no one's being tried for murder or anything like that but i just think the whole thing is obviously it's silly <laughs> but it's just it's just downright creepy i mean totally would you not would you not be scared if you were walking in the middle of the woods and you saw a, a clown with a weapon like a machete or a knife just kind of standing there and then he chased after you i'd be scared out of my mind yeah no i i, I totally would too uh it's it's not something to joke about the, the thing is though there have been people, I've also read, like in USA Today, very legitimate sources, not just a random person tweeting, that some people have lied to police about being attacked by clowns. Now, those people are the worst, because not only are you making something up, but then what happens if someone is actually victimized in one of these situations, but no one believes them because you have people lying about being attacked? I'm just saying that those those people are the worst. No, no need to lie about it. All right. Let's move on before we uh, get too in depth with this clown conversation. Kim K. Rock, we're not clowning around. AP Kim K. claims to have been robbed. I know that you're uh, you're kind of our resident Kim K. Uh, expert, so I'm gonna toss this one off to you. Yeah, well, I'm not gonna go too in depth like my man Ray J, but <laughs> uh, apparently she was robbed for about six million euros, uh, six point seven million dollars, if you want the exact conversion worth of jewelry in a Paris hotel room by two men who were disguised, uh, dressed up rather as police officers, and uh, you know it goes on and on about the details, but that's really the bottom line. Here's the here's my big takeaway from all this. There's just there's no way this can be real. I mean, this has to be a hoax, right? Why would Kim K ever, 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 ever be left alone without any some sort of security, no matter where she is? She is a 100% an A-list celebrity, one of the most coveted public figures out there, constantly, constantly worshipped by everyone in and outside the media. So. I mean, I just don't buy it that two men dressed as police officers were able to get inside of her hotel room and rob her of the jewelry. I, I just I don't see this. I see this as another ridiculous PR publicist stunt by the Kardashians. And, man, I, I got to tell you, I'm getting sick of that family. 
Yeah, I don't give the Kardashians the time of day at all. Uh, I'm not sure why anyone does, but apparently plenty of people do, like you said. Even if you don't, they just somehow they creep up in your newsfeed. That's the big thing. Was was Ray J one of those police officers? Or was he in the room somewhere? No. Uh, uh, unfortunately, Ray J is still in the dungeon of irrelevancy, as I like to call it. He was not mentioned in this story, but you can bet that he's continuing to cash out on that royalty check each month for... His uh, one-hit wonder film, Kim K Superstar. Okay. All right, that's AP with our latest Kim K update. Let's move to college football. Huge, huge game here in Eugene this weekend. The Washington Huskies, the hated Washington Huskies in this neck of the woods, against Oregon. The Dogs opened up as an 8.5-point favorite. The latest line I saw was 10.5 now, which to me seems pretty low. I would think I, – I honestly – would expect Washington Washington to win this game by a minimum of three or four touchdowns the way that Oregon played against Washington State. I mean, the Ducks surrendered 280 rushing yards and six rushing touchdowns to Washington State. That's a team that I didn't even know they had three running backs on their roster, and they had three different running backs score a touchdown in that game. They're not a rushing team by any sense of the imagination, and they were able to dominate the way they were. The biggest storyline so far this week, other than a lot of folks anticipating that Washington will break the 12-game winning streak that Oregon has going against it right now, is Oregon's quarterback situation. Dakota Prukop has clearly not been spectacular. However, I will say that he hasn't really lost Oregon any games, but he has not been able to hit the downfield pass. And it is, it is one of my biggest pet peeves when people say, that Oregon just needs a facilitator at quarterback. That could not be further from the truth. I mean, when has Oregon ever been elite when they have just a facilitator at quarterback? The answer is never. So people need to stop saying that. Like, I get that the coaches want to frame it as that to take pressure off the quarterback, but the reality is if you're the quarterback at Oregon, you still need to make some great plays to keep this offense humming. And Dakota Prukop has not been able to make those great plays. Now, I think... I don't think he's a disaster. I don't think people are hiding their eyes when he's in the ballgame. But at the same time, he hasn't been able to to operate this Oregon offense at the level that we've been accustomed to seeing the last five years, even before Marcus Mariota with guys like Darren Thomas, who are still winning Rose Bowls and conference championships. So the storyline, I've been told this, other people have been told this, is that Justin Herbert will start at quarterback this week. He's a true freshman out of Sheldon, a guy who I've known since his days in high school because I called Sheldon games when I was in college and he was at Sheldon. He's a spectacular athlete. Sheldon High School, by the way, has had plenty of really good quarterbacks come out of there. Alex Brink, one of them, who went on to have a very successful career at Washington State. Chris Miller, who went to Oregon and was a first-round draft pick in the 80s by the Atlanta Falcons. So Sheldon has had a lot of really good quarterbacks. This isn't just like some random kid from nowhere in Oregon that's going to get a chance. Like, Not only is Herbert legit, he's probably the best pitcher in the state when he was in high school. Uh, but point, regardless of all that, I should say, is that he still has to go up against one of the best defenses in the country. Outside of Alabama and maybe Clemson, Washington's defense looks as good as any. Yeah, uh, a couple things I want to touch on. You mentioned uh, Prukop didn't necessarily lose, you know, the, any of those games for Oregon, and I would argue he didn't really lose the job. I mean, I, this replacement—I'm not exactly sure what this is. Maybe it's to kind of see what they have for the future a little bit. Maybe uh, Herbert has a couple of the, uh, you know, traits and skills that Prukop doesn't. Perhaps a little better deep ball, as you had alluded to. Um, when we were talking off the podcast, maybe it's just a breath of fresh air. But if you ask me, it's not the quarterback situation. There are a number of problems with this Oregon football program that have nothing to do with whoever is taking snaps and handing the ball off and throwing downfield. What about the defense? Why aren't people blaming the defense? The defense is terrible. It doesn't look any better under Brady Oak. Granted, he doesn't have a lot to work with, but it, it looks worse. The talent sucks. The scheme the move to the 4-3, I thought the 4-3 the was really going to help. It looks awful. I, I, I don't understand it. And uh, not only that, but just the continual downward spiral of bad recruiting, bad motivation. I mean, these are serious problems within the Oregon football program that are now becoming so apparent now that Marcus Mariota isn't there to just save the day and kind of polish over all of these blemishes. 
Changing the quarterback's great, I guess, if you want to talk about a, you know, a, a new headline, uh, a breath of fresh air, but that's not going to change all the problems, brother. There's still a lot of things missing in this Oregon program right now. Yeah, no, that's a great point, and I certainly agree with it. Oregon's problem is not its offense, it's its defense. Granted, you would think that if Oregon's offense was as high-flying as it's been in recent years, they'd be able to hang in there and not be down three touchdowns against Washington State. But for sure, the defense is the problem. They are 105th in the country in rushing yards per carry. They're giving up 4.9 yards per carry. So basically every two times an opponent runs it, they have a first down right away. And they haven't even played that many good rushing teams. Like Colorado and Washington State don't really care to rush the ball very often. That's another thing too. Like sure, Philip Lindsay's a fine running back. Jamal Morrow's okay, but... They're certainly not Christian McCaffrey or either of the running backs that Oregon will see this weekend in Miles Gaskin or LeVon Coleman for Washington. So that's a huge concern for Oregon. And I agree. It starts with recruiting, which obviously starts at the top. And Mark Helfrich, I am sure, has heard plenty of heat from fans, from administrators, from everyone involved. I was listening to a podcast that the Seattle Times did uh, today, Adam Jude, who was formerly with the Register Guard, uh, talked to Kirk Herbstreet, which was pretty interesting. And he, Herbstreet, basically what Herbstreet had to say was, Oregon's lost a lot of its swagger. And not only was Oregon winning at a high level under Chip Kelly and when Marcus Mariota was there, it, it wasn't just the success. It was the innovation and how cool Oregon was. They were ahead of the game in offense, in facilities, in jerseys. Their defense was great. They were only giving up 22 points a game or so when Nick Aliotti was there. And let's not make any bones about it. Nick Aliotti was an incredible coach. I was always a huge fan of what people called the quote-unquote bend but don't break because I thought that was the ahead-of-the-curve way to play in college football. Unless you're going to get five stars like Alabama is, you're going to give up yards, but you got to make sure to not give up points. And Oregon's defense really understood that over, under Nick Aliotti, um, and they have not been able to execute that under Brady Hoke. Granted, I don't think that this bad defense is really Brady Hoke's fault. They are, there's pretty much no one out there who, who's a playmaker for Oregon, no espe especially in the front no seven. Talent. Yeah, I think Arion Springs will get a look in the National Football League. I really do. I think he's a solid corner. But outside of him... I don't think there's a single player on this team that would start for any of the great Oregon defenses in the past. I mean, Joe Walker last year would be a godsend to this year's Oregon team. He would be by far the best player on Oregon's defense this year. And you saw what Oregon did without him in the Civil War. They gave up a ton of points to Oregon State, who was really sorry last year. So it's exactly, it's a lack of playmakers, and that is Oregon's biggest problem, I agree. I just think the reason that people bring up the quarterback battle is that it's something interesting and especially it takes I don't want to take say it takes big stones but it takes some stones to bring in a, a fifth year transfer like Dakota Prukop and then basically bench him during the season when he's using his last year of eligibility to try to make a big statement at a Pac-12 school yeah totally um uh, one of the things that not a lot of people are talking about is that really does suck for Prukop I mean he could be at Montana State right now, having a fine season, not worried about his job at all, and I'm sure doing much better than two and three. But you know, it, it's it's tricky because you want to get Herbert in there for some reps, you want to get him developed, you want to get him going for the future. I get that the kid's really talented. You mentioned at Sheldon how much of a standout athlete he was, not only on the football field but also in baseball and basketball, and he really does possess. A lot of the traits that you want in a not only just a college quarterback, but a, a solid leader and a, and a three to four year starter at a major Division One program. So I, I get that putting him in the fire kind of early. I just I I don't think a this is the right game. I think Washington's defense is the best in the Pac-12 and a, a nasty first start for anyone who's going to make their debut uh, against that defense. And I also just don't think it's you know, it's, it's going to really change anything. I, I just think that the other problems that I mentioned are too big to just slap a Band-Aid on and say, look, here's a change of quarterback. All is fixed. Yeah, no, I agree. I think those are the two big questions this week at Oregon, which is does the quarterback actually make a difference, which I don't think it does, like you just said, and is this a good spot to start 
Justin Herbert because he's playing the best defense in the Pac-12. <clears throat> and, by the way, we're going to have to buy next week, so they could just prepare him for basically three weeks for their opponent after that. But, uh, you know, Oregon fans are going to buy tickets to the game now. I'll say, I'll say that. If, uh, if Herbert's truly playing, which it sounds like he is, and that's the one thing that I've been uh, kind of questioning the coaching staff about this week, it's a bit odd the way they've gone around uh, about naming Herbert the starter, which they haven't officially done that yet. But when they were asked, David Yost, Mark Helfrich, Matt Lubick, they all say, no, we haven't named a starter yet. But when you talk to other players on this Oregon football team, the center, Jake Hansen, openly admitted, he actually said, quote, he's our starting quarterback, talking about Justin Herbert. So there is no doubt, unless Justin Herbert goes down or maybe he looks horrible in the next two days of practice, that uh, unless those happen, Herbert's going to start for Oregon on Saturday. And I don't know why the coaches won't admit it if it's already out there. Or even if they don't want to admit it for competitive reasons or whatever, you should at least be on the same page with your players and let them know, hey, don't tell the media that Justin Herbert's our starting quarterback. Just tell them what we tell them, which is, the two quarterbacks are splitting reps, and we opened up the practice. Uh, we opened up the competition on Sunday. That's all I gotta say. It's it's bizarre that the coaches and the players are not on the same page, and that obviously is not a good look for the coaching staff. All right, Washington, you buying them? Jake Browning, you buying him? I'm buying to him to, uh, to a certain extent. I'm not putting all my stock into this Washington team. I'm not saying that they're, uh, you know, I, I think top five is a little egregious in the nation, and I'm not automatically locking them in for a playoff spot just because with a number of things. All right, I'll, I guess I'll just start with this. One, they had the second worst strength of schedule for their non-conference slate in FBS. The only team that was worse than them, Baylor. So and Baylor's always the bottom team. <laughs> Exactly. So if they lose even one Pac-12 game, oh boy, then you're nervous. You're sweating if you're Washington in kind of the big picture of the of the college football playoff. So there's there's one huge reason why they're kind of a liability right now. Two, the only team that they've played that's any good is Stanford, and they got Stanford when they were riddled, absolutely marred by injuries. Both their starting corners were out, and a couple other big playmakers for Stanford were missing for that game. At home, on a Friday night, after Stanford just had a long battle with UCLA the weekend before. I think that's more of just a, a bad matchup for Stanford in general, too, just because Washington, they're stout against the run. And again, Stanford missing both their quarterbacks. They were able to take a lot of deep shots. And plus, Friday night at home in Seattle, the place is popping off. The other thing is, I, I mean, they got a lot of talent. There's no doubting it. Drake Browning, I think he's a solid quarterback in a sophomore. He stepped up. He looks really, really good. But he's not by any means... Uh, to play into the caliber of a Marcus Mariota or even some of the better quarterbacks in the nation, both when Marcus played or right now. He, he's serviceable. He's a very good quarterback, though. And they got a bunch of other playmakers, John Ross, Miles Gaskin, uh, Dante Pettis, Chico McClatcher. The defense is rock solid. I just, again, I want to hit home. They haven't really played anyone outside of that great matchup they, they had versus Stanford. And I think that they're just... I'm not putting all my stock into them right now. They're solid, but they're by no means, in my opinion, you know, a, a top five team in the country. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I don't buy really anyone outside of Alabama and Ohio State in the country right now. I still think that teams have more to prove. Yeah, Louisville and Clemson do look really good, so I'll probably buy those teams. But until about November, man, and even mid-November, you really don't know fully who a team is because players are still developing Coaches are still scheming and figuring out what the best way is to use their players. I'm really not buying Jake Browning yet. I know that he has 17 touchdowns and two picks on the year, and pro football focus is just greasing him up with all these articles. But five of those touchdowns came against the powerhouse known as the Idaho Vandals. Okay, so let's just start there. <laughs> they, also, <laughs> they also played Rutgers, which... I feel bad for Chris Ash. That might as well be a Division II school as well. And then they played my boy Bruce Barnum's Portland State Vikings, which got a lot of respect for what Bruce Barnum's doing up there, but that's an FCS school as well. So I'm really not buying Jake Browning just yet. Um, I know what he did in high school. I know he set all these crazy national records, but I, I'm just I'm really not buying the kid yet. 
Uh, I'll also say that the, the one part of Washington I am buying is their rush defense. It is insanely good. And their front seven and their ability to get after the quarterback. All right. Stanford ran the ball 30 times against Washington. 29 total rushing yards. They had fewer rushing yards than carries against the Huskies. Granted, Washington, or pardon me, Stanford did have minus 25 or minus 30 rushing yards with quarterback sacks because that counts in college football, unlike the pros. But still, that's an insane stat because Stanford, only Oregon has been a better rushing team in the Pac-12 the last 10 years than the Cardinal. We know all about their O-line, which like you mentioned is banged up and young as well as Stanford secondary in that game, and they couldn't throw the ball. Ryan Burns does not look super capable of that quarterback spot for Stanford, but that is an insane stat. Washington is also top 25 in the country in tackles for loss, one of the best at quarterback sacks, and eighth in the nation in points per game, 12 points per game. So I am truly buying Washington's defense, but I'm not sold on their offense yet. Yeah, that's a fair point. I just want to bring up, too, you mentioned how good they were against Stanford against the run. You have to take into account this right here. Ryan Burns is not a good quarterback. In fact, I would argue that he's very, very below average. And because of that, they're able to stack the box on almost every single play, resulting in like pretty much, you know, dare, dare, we dare him to throw. And if you're not, you're going to run the ball with Christian McCaffrey, and we're predicting that. We're going to be right there, and we're going to tackle him for either a loss or a very minimal game. That's why they were so successful against the run. Now, a team like Oregon, if Oregon can somehow manage to air the ball out early and often with Herbert and they show success with the pass, then you can't crowd that box as much. And then you have to kind of be on your, your heels as a defense because you don't know if they're going to pass it or run it. Like I said, the Stanford matchup was just such a terrible matchup for the Cardinals, such a favorable matchup for the Huskies, that it doesn't surprise me at all how dominant their statistics were. Yeah, those, those are all very good points. And I do think that if you're trying to be the optimist on the Oregon side, that Darren Carrington has been singing the praises of Justin Herbert for a long time, and the reason he's probably doing that, in my opinion, is that Herbert's deep ball is probably better than Dakota Prukop's, and maybe significantly better, because Carrington's clearly been frustrated the last couple weeks. He's made himself unavailable to the media. I'm not sure a lot of folks know that, uh, and I think a lot of it has is stemming from the frustration that Dakota Prukop's deep ball has not been there. Obviously, Vernon Adams and Darren Carrington had an incredible connection last year, uh, and D.C. is, without a doubt, an NFL talent. All right, score prediction for Saturday? This is tough. I, I, I don't know if I can just outright give a prediction just because this game could go one or two ways, in my opinion. It's either going to be a really close game or the Bills are going to come off the wagon very fast and Washington is going to absolutely murder the Ducks for the revenge they've been waiting for for over 12 years. <laughs> There's going to be no in-between. No, be totally. That's game or it's going to be a total blowout. Yeah, that's I what, can't predict it. Dude, that's what I've been saying. And if it's close, I think Oregon probably wins because Washington, I, I think, as a program, just has it in their heads. Like, all right, Oregon has had our number for the last 12 years. If it's a close game, the dogs are probably going to get pretty tight and pretty nervous about closing this thing out. Um, so I'll say if it's close that I wouldn't be surprised if Oregon wins it, especially because they have the best kicker in college football that no one talks about. I, I, I do think that if it, that I do think that, that there's more of a chance that it will be a blowout in favor of Washington. If I have to give a score prediction, I'll say 48, 27 Washington. I just, Oregon's giving up 36 points a game this year. Last season was the worst defense in the history of the program, and this year it's somehow even worse. They just lost their best linebacker, Johnny Reagan, last week uh, to an injury. It looks like he's going to be out for an extended period of time. Coaches haven't given an update, but he certainly won't be available this week. Oregon's defense is just, I mean, we can talk about the emotional energy and the lift that Austin will give them and the whole pride of protecting the streak, but at the end of the day, Oregon's defense just can't stop anyone. And it doesn't oh, get. Oh, yeah. It, it, honestly, it looks like they have five guys out there are tackling, and their other six are just cardboard cutouts. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, honestly, you let a team like Washington State hang six rushing touchdowns on you? And I didn't even know Washington State could run. All they did was just throw. All right. So I guess we got to end the UW Oregon conversation with this uh, higher number. Sark's 
bar tab or Washington's point total on Saturday? Oh, oh man. Way to sprinkle that in. Uh, I'm going to go with Sark's bar tab. <laughs> I think that the Huskies put up a decent amount of points. But when you're ordering 36, uh, I think it was somewhere around the 30s, shots of tequila, and it's not even midnight. It's not even noon. No, it's not even noon on some of those instances. Yeah, that that guy can rack up points on his credit card like no one's business, man. I probably should have, the question I posed probably should have been higher total Washington points or Sarkeesian number of drinks ordered for the staff. Uh, so, but yeah, I, I don't see it going Oregon's way. That's, that's all I'll say. Um, all righty, let's move on to the national football league. Odell Beckham jr. The player who I paid the highest amount of money for in my fantasy football auction draft on my team. No touchdowns this season through four games. The worst start of his career. He had the worst game of his career against Minnesota. Three catches, 23 yards. He's reminding me of Des Bryant or Terrell Owens or fill-in-the-blank receiver that has just been a total diva. While supremely talented, one of the best talents in the league for sure, he's having these breakdowns that everyone's seeing on national TV where he's it looks like he's crying at times, throwing his helmet, punching, kicking nets, and it's just been, it's just been bad for him. Got a 15-yard penalty for bumping a ref against Minnesota. Uh, I'll, I'll read what he said after the loss to the Vikings regarding the penalty he said quote there's never an explanation from the officials it's always my fault it's just my fault that's all i look at it as it's my fault i just have to understand if i sneeze the wrong way it'll be a flag i'll be fine if i tie my shoe the wrong way it might be a fine or a flag end quote ap you're extremely knowledgeable about the nfl and a former receiver yourself what do you think about what's going on with OBJ this year? Just shut up and play, man. I, I don't understand why this keeps happening with star receivers. I mean, there's so many star receivers that just play the game the right way and ball out and are just total role models and examples of what you want in not only a wide receiver but just as a leader of your team. Take Larry Fitzgerald, for example. That guy's an absolute monster. He never makes headlines with any nonsense. Guys like Odell Beckham Jr., I just don't understand why they, they just can't strap the helmet on, block out the noise, and go out and play. Some people are saying that, you know, this emotion that he has, this anger, this rage, he can channel it and he can be, you know, unstoppable and he can turn it into good. Sure, but when he's not doing good, when he's just channeling it and he's sucking on the football field and he's a legitimate detriment to his team, that's when he's got to cut that out. I mean, if you want to be emotional, if you want to play the game with, with some flair and some passion, go ahead and do that. But you cannot cost your team valuable penalty yards, valuable drop balls, and then get fines too and almost act so out of control that the team is considering suspending you or benching you. That's just downright detrimental to the team, disrespectful to the team and the organization. And you just have to be a better professional. You just honestly have to grow up, be a better adult, and just stop. Cut out the nonsense and just play the game. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. I don't understand divas in sports. I, I really don't. I, I don't know. I, I love personalities in sports, but if there's one thing that I can't stand across the sporting world, it's divas, especially when you really don't have any reason to be doing this. I mean, he, sure, I, I know that he hasn't been targeted as much as he would like to be this season, in part because they have Victor Cruz and Sterling Shepard, who are also good receivers, but there's just no reason for you to be throwing temper tantrums and making the game something else. He's like creating this new game within the game that's probably throwing off how he performs and how his team performs as well. Um, I think the Larry Fitzgerald uh, comparison was perfect about a guy who just shows up, he's no nonsense, and just gets the job done. And I'll say this too, the value of wide receivers for the most part is extremely overrated in the NFL. I mean, the Lions didn't do anything with Calvin Johnson, who by all accounts, is one of the most physically gifted receivers to ever play in the league. They didn't do much with him. Tom Brady's got, what, four rings? He's been throwing to Julian Edelman and Chris Hogan and, and all these other random guys. Like, Granted, he has had Gronk. He did have a crazy year when Randy Moss was there for a year. But 
receiver is a position that that's pretty overrated in the NFL. And if I'm if I'm a GM or a head coach, basically uh, what I'm telling these guys is like, hey man, you maybe mean one point a game to us on a Vegas betting line. Like you're not playing if you keep throwing these temper tantrums, and that's a way to get their attention really quick. The Giants management needs to be better because if 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 Bill Belichick was in charge of this team, I guarantee you that OBJ would be benched for a game. Yeah, uh, I, I do think in some sense receivers are overrated. I, they're also very important when you think of how the league is just such a passing league now and it's kind of drifted away from the traditional bell cow running back league and guys are throwing for 500 yards almost every weekend. So there's a lot more passing in the NFL, but uh, you know, sure, to a sense they're overrated. You know, you, you, they're serviceable. Teams like uh, the Patriots, where they can uh, substitute guys in and out for receivers, and that's because they have such a good line and they have Tom Brady and such a good head coach. Really, the most important things in the league, just as a side note, pass rush, protection, and a solid franchise quarterback. But receivers are still very important, albeit maybe overrated in some cases, especially when you have guys like Odell Beckham and Des Bryant that are more so cancers of the team and are just being too big of divas to really have a positive impact and conversely more so a negative impact. I, I don't really know what else to say at this point when it comes to OBJ and I guess the bigger picture, the bigger issue, uh, just you know receivers being divas in general. I don't know how many times you can tell these guys to just shut up and play football and just you know strap on the helmet and go out there and just give it all you got without the nonsense because that just doesn't seem to work. They don't listen. They just get caught up in their own nonsense, and they are so mentally weak, this is another issue, that they just, whoever they're lining up across from them, they're automatically in their head, and they can't shake it. I, I don't get it. Why aren't these guys mentally stronger and just focusing on the game? You're a professional. This is your job. You're getting paid to do this paid a lot of money and you still can't for some reason you know be a pro about this yep there are plenty of good guys in the league julio jones who just set a franchise record with 300 yards against a pretty good panthers defense although it would be a lot better if they had josh norman uh, which we'll get to in a second but julio jones is another guy who just shuts up and and does his thing and he's a young guy too i mean he was at he was at alabama a couple of years ago winning a national title he hasn't been in the league forever so, yeah, I mean, it's just an extremely immature move by OBJ. I don't like him anymore, um, as as I used to absolutely love watching the guy. He's one of those players who, if you watch him in warm-ups, I've never seen him live and in person like I have LeBron, but w- watching LeBron in warm-ups or Steph in warm-ups or pick your fantastic athlete is worth the price of admission in itself. Seriously, it is unbelievable to watch these guys. And OBJ's the same way. I mean, I've at least seen him on TV on the NFL Network 10 minutes before a game warming up. It's absolutely incredible to watch someone who's just a master at their craft. But it's tough to like this dude now, man. And I think a lot of people feel the same way. All right, Josh Norman. Fine 10K Wednesday. He was pretending to shoot an arrow after he was celebrating an interception. Uh, thoughts on this on this fine? Absolutely pathetic. I have no idea what the NFL is doing. Why are they finding players initially throwing flags, 15-yard penalty flags for celebrations? And then also on top of that, why are there hefty fines for this? I mean, seriously, what are you doing? Oh, what, a guy can't celebrate after he scores a touchdown? I thought this was an emotional game. I thought this is a, a, a place where if you score a touchdown, what, are you supposed to just be a robot? Some of these guys are happy, God forbid, that they just scored a touchdown. Why can't, as long as it's not like completely obscene and over the top, you know, maybe Antonio Brown's pumping dance is a little bit uh, risque, so to speak. Maybe that needs to kind of be toned down a little bit. But some Jerry bow and arrow, that is so ridiculous. It's not like he shot it at anyone either. He just shot it randomly into the crowd. 10K for that. $10,000. And also, where's that money going? Is that just Goodell's charity fund that he uses for his vacations? That's ridiculous, man. The league needs to cut this out right now. I've always felt that way about any type of celebration by any player, unless it's like clearly offensive or somewhat risque. You reference the Antonio Brown, either the twerking or the humping. Not 100% sure like what he's getting out of that by celebrating in that <laughs> fashion, other than that it's like pretty funny. I guess I can see the NFL cracking down on that because it's a sexual gesture and, you know, people are going to say that they get offended or, or whatever. But I don't understand 
I don't, I've never understood the celebration penalty, even in college. It's cracked down way too much. Like scoring a touchdown in a big college game or a big pro game, or or you know grabbing an interception, that's like the highlight of someone's career at times. And for them to not be able to celebrate is just absolutely absurd. The NCAA needs to take a look at that in college, and same with the pros. And I'll also say that Brandon Cooks, former Beaver, he was actually at Oregon State practice today, by the way, as we're taping this on a Thursday. He shoots a bow and arrow after every touchdown, and sometimes after a big gain. I don't see what the difference is between Josh Norman's shooting of a bow and arrow and Brandon Cooks' shooting of a bow and arrow. He even calls himself the archer on his Instagram page. So I, I don't understand. He doesn't get fined for it. I, I just simply don't understand why the NFL is, is, is fining Josh Norman. Maybe it has to do with the fact that Norman signed a $75 million contract because he's been fined like for a couple different things. I'm just saying they're clearly targeting a player who just got uh, a lot of money. But it sounds like we're both in agreement there. Yeah, I think Goodell's looking at it, and from his standpoint, he can either go to Cabo or Bora Bora. <laughs> He's leaning towards that nice clear water over there in Bora Bora, you know what I'm saying, brother? <laughs> so he looks at Josh Norman, and he throws that laundry real quickly. He's got a stick in his pocket that'll cover his private jet over there, and he's good to go. Gotta stay away from the Bahamas right now, though, with Hurricane Matthew coming through, dude. Gotta, yes, seriously. Gotta be real careful about that. But yeah, uh, by the way, Josh Norman has handled this very well, all things considered. I, I've read, I've read some quotes from him. Uh, he said, you know, I, I respect the league's decision. I, I, he's appealed it. I've heard from some experts that more than likely the suspension, or sorry, not suspension, the fine will get cut in half, so it goes from ten grand to five grand. Apparently, that's often what happens when players appeal fines and do so respectfully, et cetera, et cetera. Um, ten thousand is nothing to him at all with that new contract that he just signed. But uh, I will say that he's handled this a lot better than his enemy on the field, Odell Beckham Jr., probably would. All right, Blue Jays Orioles. I'm not gonna lie, man. I, I would rather watch paint dry than watch baseball, but in the postseason, especially for these one-game wildcard games, I'm starting to love them. I used to absolutely hate on the one-game wildcard because you play 162 games, and then if you play one bad game, your season's over. But when I actually sat down and watched all nine innings, I see how much strategy goes into it. You can use five, six, seven different pitchers if you'd like. Every single pitch matters. Every single out matters. And I'm really liking these one-game wild cards. And uh, Blue Jays Orioles was was one for the books. Yeah, I, I like them. I'm going to go one step further and say that I like some. Uh, it, it depends. It really does depend. The Blue Jays Orioles game was a classic. An awesome example of why the one-game wild card elimination is awesome. It, it, it truly was great. A lot of scoring. Some pretty solid pitching at times. A walk-off three-run blast on my man Encarnacion. I mean, that's everything that you could possibly want in a baseball game. The Giants and Mets, conversely, pretty terrible. And you could argue that, oh, it was a pitcher's duel. It was a classic case of two aces going at it. Yeah, sure. But why would I want to watch for three hours guys swing at Baumgartner's curveball into the dirt and not get a, like maybe three or four hits but not score a run until – some guy named Connor Gillespie just puts his bat out like a kid at a pinata party and connects on a three-run home run, and that's how they win the game. That's how it ends. That game was just so boring that I could barely keep my eyes open. I almost fell asleep. Oh, I fell asleep four different times. Just because it was so late, and I'd work the next day, and it was so unappealing. Blue Jays, Orioles, classic. Giants, Mets. Oh, man, I'd rather watch women's wrestling. <laughs> Women's wrestling's becoming like a big thing now. I'm pretty sure John Cena's about to have his own reality show because he's dating a, a female WWE lady. It's John Cena! John Cena! Uh, but yeah, dude, I mean, obviously Buck Showalter deservedly getting some criticism for not using Zach Britton, who... The best closer in baseball. Is the best closer in baseball. Yeah. And he was, I, I think his reasoning that he said was he wanted to wait for the Orioles to get the lead, which really didn't make a lot of sense once extras started. So he's obviously getting a lot of criticism for, for that. Um, the, the Blue Jays are just so much fun to watch, man. I mean, about half their roster 
swings as hard as they possibly can on every pitch, which is the way you should play baseball, in my opinion. Just swing as hard as you can, man. Like, it is awesome to watch Donaldson, Batista, Encarnacion, Tulowitzki, all these guys just swinging as hard as they can, throwing bats, hitting home runs. And by the way, you know, for everyone that said that's hating on the whole swing as hard as you can theory, uh, the home run means a ton in the postseason. You saw what happened in that Giants game. So people should stop hating on that. I love watching the Blue Jays, man. They're a blast. I don't, I don't know about their pitching if it's good enough, uh, but clearly they, they shut down the Rangers today. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I just love watching the Blue Jays, man. Yeah, great team. Uh, they're making baseball great again, and they need a couple – the MLB needs some more teams like that that just swings for the fences. The Red Sox, they slug. They're fun to watch. Uh, at, at, at times, the Rangers can do that, but not a whole lot of teams just get up there and aim for the fences, and I think that's really what – Baseball needs to become, you know, a, a, one of the, the American power sports again. Really, their ratings are getting trumped by basketball and football. And it's, it's just, yeah. you know, a lot of those games are just so boring to watch. You literally cannot do it. I cannot do it unless I am physically at the game. I'll turn on SportsCenter and watch a few highlights. But other than that, regular season baseball is about as dry as it gets. Oh, yeah. I mean, the best part about the Giants-Mets game were the three bros behind home plate just tanked up on, on every pitch, just screaming. Like, that was fun to watch. That That's why you watch a baseball game, man. You don't actually watch it for the baseball. You you go there to have a brew and people watch and hang out and chop it up. Um, I will say it was also pretty funny that Connor Gillespie, the random, pretty much random guy on the Giants who ended up hitting that bomb to give them the win, was just pounding his junk right before he got up there. I don't know if you saw it, but he was he kept continuously cup-checking himself. He did it like three times right before he got up there, then slapped the sand, and then took to the batter's box. I'm not sure what he was doing, but it worked. Uh, so that was pretty interesting. And also, obviously, we have to give credit to Mad Bum, who just continues to be an absolute animal. By all accounts, statistically, the greatest Caesar, uh, the greatest pitcher in postseason history you see these comparisons side by side with tom glavin and other greats and he is right there if not the best ever in the postseason and he's just so focused i watched that whole game and he has a kind of an unorthodox style throws that nasty curve like you said honestly doesn't even look like he's throwing the ball that hard but his stuff is just nasty and he's just so laser focused uh that it's, it's pretty fun to watch yeah he's a stud he is a postseason demigod. I mean, he's unstoppable when the playoffs come around. He kind of had a, a poor regular season by his standards. I know his record wasn't that great, but he was still throwing good stuff. Uh, but when he gets to the playoffs, man, he's a completely different animal. Yeah. All right, let's stop talking about the Giants. That's way too much San Francisco Giants talk for me. All right, <laughs> let's go. Let's go NBA preseason, Big Tony. Your Warriors. I watched them play. Uh, they look pretty good. I, I'm with the crowd, which that it's not unfair, and I would have probably made the same move as KD. I just don't like it for the league that he's there because it just makes that team unbelievable. Granted, people will watch them play every single night for sure, uh, but it's, I mean, they're just so good, it's not even funny. Like, Steph didn't do anything in that first half. He had seven points, and they were still up 40 at halftime. Yeah, I... I Foolish to say that, I mean, I, I, I don't know how, if you're a diehard Warriors fan, that's good for the league. It's not. You take away one of the best players in the league on a contending Oklahoma City team and you move them to the team that set a, a season record, an NBA regular season record for wins, and you basically create one of the best super teams in the history of basketball, while at the same time pretty much demolishing the Thunder, uh, certainly robbing them of their best player. And... Now, you know what it does? It waters down the league. It makes the, the rich richer, and it kind of makes the Oklahoma City kind of fall into the middle class of teams. So that sucks. I mean, you, there's pretty much no argument that the, the league is weaker now as a whole. Obviously, it's great as a Warrior fan. You love to see just great players moving the ball. They kind of they, they look like the Olympic team out there, Durant and Thompson. Is it, though? Is, is it possible to have too much talent on the floor? And don't get me wrong, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of of basketball, and I have nothing but the utmost respect for guys like Durant and Curry, but is it possible at some point? Because, like, LeBron 
was clearly better than Dwayne Wade in Miami. Granted, Dwayne Wade was still a great player. Chris Bosh, great player. But there was no question who the best player on that team was. Now you have KD and Steph, who many people think are the two of the three best players in the world on the same team. Is that is that still fun to watch? From what standpoint? If you're a Warriors fan, it's absolutely fun to watch. I think in general it's, it's fun to watch, even if you're an NBA fan. To go back to your original question... Uh, is is there too much talent at times on the floor to to kind of maintain the chemistry of a good basketball team? I think that that question is entirely dependent upon the scheme. And Steve Kerr is an amazing coach, and his offense obviously runs like a well-oiled machine. And so far, what we've seen in the preseason, I mean, they they look like they have been playing together forever, and they haven't missed a beat. So I really don't think that in this case, there's too much talent on the floor. I think you can say that for some other cases, uh, but. I just think with this scheme, how Kerr runs things, and just how unselfish all those guys are and how they move the ball, I don't think that's necessarily going to be a, a negative factor. Are the Knicks a playoff team? Yes, but that's just about all they are. I mean, they're not a contender. Let's get this, let's get this thing straight. They're not a contender. They're not a super team, Derrick Rose. <laughs> they're not even close to a super team. You just have a bunch of washed up old bumps like Joakim Noah and freaking Brandon Jennings. That does not make you a super team when you pick up guys that were great at one time but are now just pretty much trash. Uh, so, no, not a super team. Yes, a playoff team. No, not a contender. They kind of remind me of the Brooklyn Nets from like four years ago. Is that a fair comparison? I mean... Very, very fair. When they had, when the Nets had KG and Paul Pierce, they yeah. were just recently shipped over from the the uh, Celtics. <clears throat> yeah, they got a bunch of washed up old timers, uh, or you know, not completely old timers, not as old as KG and Paul Pierce were, but you got a decent amount of guys like you just referenced who are out of their prime or on the edge of being out of their prime, and a point guard like Derrick Rose. I will say that I've never been a big Derrick Rose fan at all. Um, I don't think that He's a player that I would ever want on my team unless he was like the fifth best player on my team because he's a bad shooter. Without You can't question that. He is a terrible shooter, uh, and he has the ball in his hands a lot. So I would never want him on my team. But I'm just excited that he's out of Chicago because now the Bulls don't have any excuses. Now they can't be saying, oh, Derrick Rose is still hurt. Derrick Rose is still hurt. It's like, dude, Derrick Rose is not there anymore. So you had no excuse, and now you got D. Wade. I'm actually excited to see the Bulls for once this year. Because the whole Derrick Rose is still hurt plot line in the Eastern Conference has just been one of those subplots that's just been so annoying the last few years. And now that he's on the Knicks, it almost makes sense because that is a franchise who has been the most overrated in sports, or at least one of the most over the last 20 years. And so I'm, I'm just happy that Derrick Rose is on the Knicks. I don't, I'm not wishing him any ill will, so to say, but he's just out of the picture at the moment. And I think that they're a fringe playoff team. At best, I think they'll finish in that 7-9 to nine seed spot. Um, let's keep it going with the NBA. David Blatt gets a ring. Of course, he was the embattled Cavaliers head coach that bumped shoulders with LeBron many times a game or many times a season. LeBron clearly was not a huge Blatt supporter, and by all accounts, it did not seem that Blatt fit there very well. That was a huge organizational risk by the Cavs, who have not been a very... Very well-run organization at all. One of the worst in sports, really, other than having LeBron, who has continued to be their savior. But Black gets a ring. LeBron's comment was very, uh, I don't want to say passive-aggressive, that because that's not what it is, but he clearly did not care one way or the other. Here's LeBron's quote on David Black getting a ring. Quote, that's an organizational thing, and if that's what they wanted to do, then we're all for it. Who am I to say who can or can't get a ring? End quote. Well, you're LeBron James, but I guess that's technically not uh, his decision. But to me, if I'm David Blatt, I don't accept that ring. And if I'm the Cavaliers, I guess I offer it to him because he was there at the start of LeBron's return. But I'm not accepting that if I'm David Blatt. Yeah, I'm not accepting it just because, I mean, they were barely on the decline while he was there. And the guys were pretty much quitting on him as evidence to a few blowouts. Uh, suffered towards the end of his kind of coaching career, and then he was let go. I wouldn't accept it. I, I, I agree. You didn't win it, really. You just kind of set the foundation, but you didn't really uh, elevate them to that height. Um, and if I'm the Cavaliers, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a nice gesture 
but really it's kind of a hollow offer. That quote by LeBron, I mean, damn, that is that is really cold, man. I mean, you didn't say, basically just saying, like, yeah, whatever, dude. If you want it, you can take it. You don't really deserve it, but... That's true, though, isn't it? It is, but it's just like... I'm all, I'm all good. I'm all good with it. I don't think that, I mean, I don't. I think it's just an unnecessary thing to kind of like, you know, be so negative about. I mean, he, I, I, I just think that he should have said something nice about Vlad. I mean, I, I guess he doesn't have to, but to me, that's just like, dude, you can take it if you want. None of us care at all. I, I think that's probably what he should have said. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I don't, I don't, I don't think Blatt built the foundation. Seriously, I don't. I think LeBron was the foundation, and Ty Lue seems to be an amazing coach, putting on for Missouri City. Uh, is that what he said? Missouri City. I think he said that like eight times in the championship uh, postseason interviews. But yeah, I mean, listen, man, I, I, I heard a lot of athletes respond to it. Jalen Rose, Chauncey Billups, both said that they would take the ring if they were. David Blatt, um, all I'm saying is if he wasn't there during the playoff run, I'm not exactly sure how much he had to do with the success. But anyways, regardless, it's it's just one of those things. Dame Lillard, speaking of super teams, says no to super teams. He was asked by media um, if he would enjoy being a part of a super team, and his response was in so many words that he would never do that because he has too much pride was his quote. I'll say this, Dame Lillard is one of my favorite athletes out there uh, and one of my favorite ever because he means more than just basketball to the city of Portland, to his hometown of Oakland. He means a lot to a lot of different people, and he's one of those guys that's bigger than the sport. Uh, LeBron is a transcendent athlete, for example. He means a ton to the Cleveland community. I think people are well aware of how much money he's donated to schools there to make sure that kids on the streets get off the streets and have a better education. There's just no possible way that you could deny how good of a person he is from that standpoint. And I think Dame Lillard is starting to have that effect on the city of Portland and his hometown, etc. So I preface that by saying it because when he says he has too much pride, that sounds like a negative quote. But really what he meant to say or what he means is that he would never jump to Dallas and join two other superstars and start a team. And I'm totally okay with that. Yeah, I am too. Uh, let's let's clear this thing up here. It's very important that you mention that um, because there's some confusion surrounding this boat. It's not like Dame... He's not saying that he wouldn't try to recruit someone like a Durant, for example, in last year's free agency. Like, by all means, if Durant... Damian Lillard would not shy away from that. I mean, I, totally. I, think that's pretty, I think that's pretty clear here that big name free agents, if he were able to recruit them, he would not say no to that. I mean, that's like the that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is that he wouldn't jump ship like a LeBron to Miami situation or a, a KD to the Warriors situation. So those are two different things. There, you know, he he wouldn't say no to he would say no to joining up with a team like that. He's got too much pride for that, especially I think he's mainly referring to how much pride he has for the city of Portland and how much he means to that community, as you alluded to earlier. That's the bigger thing here. It's not about recruiting big-name guys to come in and form a great team in Portland. It's about jumping ship and starting somewhere else where the grass is greener, so to speak. Yeah, no, that's, and yeah, that's exactly what he said, and he was even asked kind of a follow-up, and he basically said, yeah, sure, I, I would recruit players to come here or I would welcome stars with open arms. And then he did reference the Warriors. He said that before they had KD and a couple of years ago, no one thought that the Warriors were going to be what they are now. I mean, not not even anyone inside the organization thought that they were going to be one of the best teams in the regular season of all time when they drafted Draymond Green and, and had Bogut and Harrison Barnes. No one was thinking like, wow, all right, that's a super team. But they became that. And, and what I like about that is the Warriors – before they got KD, did build from within, and that's exactly what the Blazers are trying to do. And, you know, Portland's been a team that has been very well managed and, and well run the last couple of years. I do think that the Evan Turner signing is a good one for Portland because he doesn't actually take a lot of shots or take shots away from Portland's two best playmakers, C.J. McCollum and Dame Lillard, but at the same time, He'll bring the rebounds and the assists and the defensive intensity that this team needs. So I agree. I, I think it's a great statement by Dame. And obviously, I'm a little bit of a Blazers homer, but 
Dude, every time Dame talks, he just says something that makes sense and says something good. And I and I'm a I'm a big fan of him, man. He's definitely one of those transcendent athletes that's great for the city of Portland. Obviously, Blazers been through some rough times with the whole Greg Oden, Brandon Roy debacle, and then Lamarcus Aldridge leaving. All right, good stuff. We have a rant from AP, I believe. Gabbert versus Stanton was your Thursday night football matchup. The National Football League, probably not too happy to see that. Look, man, a couple of things. These Thursday night games just need to flat out stop. I think that at this point, it's just becoming oversaturation. You got football on Thursdays, football on Fridays, football on Saturdays with college. And now Sundays, and or and Sundays have always been the NFL's day. Sometimes even, and Monday night too. So you're really, you're getting football five nights. If you want to count some of the smaller games on Wednesday night too, six nights a week. And with the NFL adding this Thursday night game, you know, teams are coming off short week rest. They're not putting their best effort out there. That's why a lot of these games are sloppy, one-sided blowouts or just low-scoring affairs in general. So I, I really think that these Thursday night games, the league would just be better without them, man. They suck. They flat-out suck. I felt like I wasted about an hour and a half of my time tonight watching the first half when it was just goose-egg-goose-egg from the Niners and the Cardinals. Just not a good look for the league right there. Now, in terms of the matchup, Gavin versus Stanton, Stanton won the game. You know, he played like a, a game manager. You know, you didn't, you didn't play terrible by any means. I want to go in on Blaine Gabbert. I think this guy is one of the worst quarterbacks to ever step on an NFL field. He is downright awful. This guy can't hit the broad side of a barn with the football. I mean, he's dunking balls that are like 10 yards short in the ground. He's turfing them. He's ducking them. He's throwing them over receiver's head. He cannot throw a deep ball at all. He is so inaccurate with the deep pass. He can only throw checkdowns. When it's third and anything longer than five, he will throw the ball shorter than the sticks, and the guy will get creamed, and it'll be fourth and five. I don't understand that. This guy sucks. He's terrible. Why is there not a better option in San Francisco than Blaine Gabbard? I get that you don't want to play Kaepernick because he's really thin and frail and frazzled right now, and he, too, also isn't a good quarterback anymore. And if you play him and he gets hurt, you got to pay his guaranteed injury contract. And I get that Christian Ponder has also been one of the worst quarterbacks to ever step on an NFL field. How are those the only three guys that the Niners have? I don't understand. Yeah, man, I agree with you on pretty much all those points. I was looking at the – I looked at every single NFL roster the other day when I was bored at who their backup quarterback was, and it blows my mind how bad backup quarterbacks are in the NFL. Like, I, I, I looked at every single roster – I wouldn't trust a single backup in the NFL to win a game, seriously. And so that's probably why Blaine Gabbert is the starter, because clearly Kaepernick, there's a money and a, and a contract situation there. And then Christian Ponder's not any good, let's be honest, even though I'm pretty sure he was a first-round draft pick back in the day. So it was Blaine Gabbert. Yeah, oh yeah, Blaine Gabbert was 10th overall to the Jags, I believe, which is also pretty crazy. That's probably why his confidence is ruined, because he went to the Jags for the first three or four seasons. But, dude, I agree on these Thursday night games, man. Like, the, the quality of football is not good because teams are still beat up and still recovering from bashing their skulls against the other team on, on the previous Sunday four days or five days beforehand. Second of all, with the new contracts in place, I believe a quarter or half of these games are now on the NFL Network on Thursdays which a lot of people don't get the NFL Network. I do, but I mean, I know there's a lot of people out there that don't get the NFL Network. And on top of that, I can't imagine that these ratings are super great because people are doing other things on the Thursday. There's already college football going on on Thursday nights, even though the games aren't great. I don't even know what the game was tonight, but you're still competing against college football. And then, dude, this matchup tonight was just actually like the worst combination of circumstances for, for for this game to get ratings. First of all, the quarterback matchup was Gabbard against Stanton, two pretty awful quarterbacks. Second of all, did you see how many people were in the stadium at the start of the game? That thing could not have been more than a third of the way full. Seriously, there were so many empty seats. It was five, because the kickoff's 525 on the West Coast. People are still at work in the Bay Area. As far as I'm concerned, people in the Bay work from like 8 a.m. to like 7 p.m. <laughs> and, and secondly... Uh, the matchup just wasn't very good, so it was just a really tough, tough circumstance all the way around. Yeah, uh, like I said, we'd be better off without these Thursday night games. 
and especially when it's a dud of a matchup coming from the likes of Blaine Gabbard versus Drew Stan. A waste of time, man. It was a waste of three hours. I shouldn't have even watched. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard a single person say, oh my gosh, that was an amazing Thursday night NFL game, which should really tell you something because it's been going on for a couple of years. So we're in agreement there, and I don't think it's exactly a, a new hot take. People have had this take for a while. But um, all right, man, great pod. This has been Tony in the Field pod number nine. Did a lot of good stuff on this one. Talked a lot of college football and Oregon and the downfall of the Ducks program at the moment. A little OBJ, some Josh Norman. Talked a lot of baseball for a while, which is good for us. We don't normally do that. And then the NBA, uh, I'm sure we will have some fantastic discussions about the NBA coming up uh, this season, even though the regular season can be a little bit dry. But, all right, man, good stuff. You got anything for me uh, coming up in the next week or so? going to be a big weekend here. I got about six people staying at my place uh, for the UW-Oregon game. So my place is going to be Animal House for the next two nights. Yeah, you charging rent or what's going on there? <laughs> I should be, but I'm not really supplying any beds. Uh, well, we <laughs> we <laughs> pump up the air mattress, throw a water bed in there. We have a we have a futon downstairs which sleeps two. Probably gonna give that to Steven and his girlfriend. I would I think would be my guess. And then uh, and then we got a couch, and then the floor after that. I told people to bring foam pads, so we'll see if that works out. Hey, and if you see Sark at Taylor's, man. Tell him I say what's up, and he owes me a tequila shot, all right? Dude, life goals, get Sark on this podcast and take a tequila shot with him. He, 100%. He would instantly, his credibility in my book would instantly shoot up through the roof. <laughs> Wouldn't it? If he, if he was, yeah. if oh, he was yeah. man enough to come on the pod and, and have a drink with us? Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah, we should do that for sure. Sark, if you're listening somehow... Come on in, brother. Shot of Hornitos on us. We'll welcome you with open arms and drop shots. All right, this has been Tony in the Field, podcast number nine. We will see you guys next week. Thanks for listening.